I want to uh, take the time. Let's get right to the go right to the Lord. And let's just let God do some really awesome stuff tonight, okay? Lord, I want to thank you so much for my brothers and sisters who are here tonight. I want to thank you for the privilege of being able to take this time and expect you to do great stuff. I mean, here we are. It's, it's, it's past eight. It's still bright as day outside. And it's just such a crazy world we live in. And uh, here we are, Lord, in a season of great change uh, as we see our prime minister change almost instantly. And I think he thought he had till October. And now it's sort of like, yes, I mean, I can't even imagine what it's like to sort of say, well, you've got a couple of days and then you need to move out of 10 Downing Street. Just we live in such a time of crazy change. Uh, here we are, we're stepping out of the EU and we're se- sort of seeking our own identity. And, and God, here we are as a church. We're just sort of, we're just, we've watched uh, a lot of these referendums and we've watched, watched a lot of uh, things in regards to visa issues and just uh, madness that has uh, just created all kinds of crazy change around us. And here we are now. We're just seeking, Lord, to, do, to let you do all your work, Lord, to have your, have your pleasure with us. And we, we know that if you do anything with us, we will be better for it. And so, Lord, I just pray that tonight your word would just captivate us, draw us closer. We'd really get it. And, Lord, that it would all make great sense. So, Lord, as we look at the lives of two different individuals, uh, primarily that of Saul tonight, I pray, Lord, that we would take the admonitions, the exhortations, as you want us to learn from them. Lord, that we would really get it and that we would learn from this, Lord, what not to do, but also, Lord, we get those examples of what to, that we'd be so encouraged, uh, built up, equipped, and even that much more ready, Lord, for all that you have. So, Lord, I just commit this time to you now and just pray you would be blessed. As we're here, Lord, be blessed. And, Lord, reach us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say tonight, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Which just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be the authority. Uh, look at verse 23 with me because it really is a pivotal verse. Uh, at the beginning of chapter 14, it's one of my favorite sections of scripture, those first 22 verses. And one of the reasons is, is because in those 22 verses, we have a guy named Jonathan. Uh, and this guy is just the deal. Uh, he is, uh, his dad is Saul and his dad has already been told, you've lost your legacy. And because of his unconsecrated heart as it starts to surface, we really see a guy, he's got his tremendous calling, but he really, I mean, that's the part that God does. And, and it's important to recognize people love to play this card in a place that's infinitely stranger than where we see it in scripture. We talk about God's calling and you can't tell God what he wants to make you. And it'll say, for instance, can the potter say, to, I'm sorry, can the pot say to the potter, why, why are you making me like this? I mean, it just seems senseless. And we kind of almost make that sound like somehow God has ordained certain people to be ashtrays while others are to be mean vases. You know, and, and, and please, please understand, though, God is a calling on our lives and the calling that he places on our lives is really kind of really it only fits you. Uh, there is the calling on Adam's life will never fit me. Uh, the calling on my life won't fit Adam. And praise God, because there's only one of each of us. Uh, and, and understand in that, that's the part that's God's choice. I didn't choose to be a pastor, but boy, am I thankful he made me one. Uh, I, and it continues in that sense. I, you know, and I just, I love the fact that that was God's choice. And that was something I had no say in the matter over, but I'm really, really thankful. And he knew, by the way, how that would bless me. He also knew prayerfully how that would bless you as well. Now, on the other side of that, I do have a choice in this, and that is the consecration aspect. How much of my heart do I want to let God have? And there's the idea that I can do all of these external observations and do all of these things. But really, in the end of it all, the matter of the heart's going to be 
our heart. That's going to be the issue. I know I've heard it said, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Now, now the reason I say that is in those first 22 verses, Saul has already been handed, in essence, this challenge. That, Saul, you are the last king in your family. From this point on, I'm going to give that kingship, that crown, to someone else. And, and crazy as it is, God's given him a crown, and, and that crown, it's gone to his head. Uh, and, and Saul, now, he has this fantastic calling, but he really doesn't have a heart set apart for God. And so what we saw, though, in the first 23 verses is the kid who knew he couldn't be king, that's his son, decides he's going to take the battle anyways. He's going to go because he's tired of watching God's people do nothing. He's tired of just watching everything be just clubs and kumbaya meetings and things where we're kind of tucked away in the corners, insignificant, impotent, and irrelevant to the world around us. And, of course, the world's going to look at it but prefer us that way because we're less threatening. And in those first, 20, uh, first 22 verses, we saw a guy take on, you know, 30,000 charioters. I mean, this is a crazy innumerable army was what we read. I mean, we read that the guy is just basically taking on Russia uh, and it's him and an armor bearer. And it, he says, look, the Lord's not limited to save by a whole lot of people or very few. So why not? And listen to this. This is the now for us as we look at this. I mean, it isn't like what God's telling us is to start grabbing machine guns and gunning people down. What God does tell us is that there's a spiritual battle and what God really wants to see is people come to know him. But please understand, what we learn in Jonathan's example was such a cool thing. And to be honest, it's been a really cool week of this. This is what Jonathan said in in the simplest sense. And again, don't just believe me, but here it is in a nutshell. We're going to go and present ourselves, me and my armor bearer. So me and a buddy that's willing to pray with me, we're going to go and we're going to present ourselves to the enemy camp, whatever. And here's what they're going to do one of two things. They're either going to come at us or they're going to invite us in. If they come at us, we're going to hold our ground. It never says we're going to run away. Then we're going we're to hold our ground. But if they invite us in, we know that there's victory. So we're going to go in for the victory. Now, what if that was our evangelical tactic for the world around us, for our mom and our dad and our friends and the people we work with? You present yourself. I'm a Christian. I just want you to know I love Jesus. He's transformed me. Now, one of two responses is going to happen. Some people are going to say, what an idiot. You know what you do? You hold your ground. You don't bend and go, oh, they made fun of me. You just don't bend. You just say, you know what? You're welcome to have a different opinion. I guarantee you one day we're going to agree. Now, they'll probably think you'll agree with them in the end. But in the end, I guarantee you they're going to declare because it says every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. There will be a day they will agree with you. So if they do kind of fly out at you, what do you think? You close-minded idiot. You know, it's amazing how they'll call you prejudice. And they'll say that you're a bigot, but they'll come at you with all of these preconceived ideas, which, by the way, is what prejudice is, prejudging. You know, it's crazy how that works. You know, and all of that to say, if they come at you, hold your ground. But on the other side of it, what if it's that they actually say, well, I'd like to know a little bit more. Then know that there's victory to be had. And if there's victory to be had, man, jump on it. Let it that's cool. Yeah, let it, let it be like that. Yeah, because people can still pop in. Thank you, Adam. Uh, so, so hear me on this. What if this week we prayed for that specifically? What if we said, God, this week, give me the courage to just start by letting people know, hey, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. Now you call it whatever you want. I use Jesus for it still. I just think it's kind of fun. People are like, you know, how are you doing? Of course, I'm like, awesome. And they're like, awesome. What makes you awesome? I'm like, I'm a Jesus freak. And they're like, hey, I have no idea what that is. 
And I'm like, would you like to know more? And they're like, uh, well, when? And you're like, well, that sounds like that could be an invite. And there'll be others that'll be like, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. And you're like, well, sorry you disagree, but I am awesome. How are you doing? When they're like, well, I'm not so great. Well, how funny that is. I'm the idiot, but I'm the one full of joy. You can work on that. You can do that math yourself. Now, okay, so in these first 22 verses, well, what if that was the exhortation we took with us, first of all, from a great example of a guy who, by the way, Jonathan means the grace of God. What a great name. So imagine, we said, okay, this is what my life's going to be this week. I'm going to let everyone know that I believe in Jesus. And then I'll see how they respond. And they might be like, idiot, then I'll hold my ground if they invite me in. I can know there's victory to be had there. But then it says in verse 23, and the mood really changes. It says, so the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to Bet-Avin. Now, Bet-Avin, by the way, means house of worthlessness or house of vanity, which is interesting because the camera moves from Jonathan to his dad, Saul. Remember the guy with the great calling, but no consecration? Which is interesting. So what we learn now from the rest of chapter 14 and chapter 15, what we learn in this really is how really to be an idiot. (laughs) I mean, how to really take all of this great calling of God and waste it. And it's going to really basically boil down to this. What do you take seriously? Now, what we'll find is, is that what Jonathan took seriously was the Lord. He took seriously the Lord's name. He took seriously the Lord's honor. And he took seriously God's people. Now, really, to be honest, we're going to see that with the person that's going to replace Saul, certainly one of the greatest heroes in Scripture, a guy named David, which, God willing, we'll meet next week. Now, now understand, already Saul has this. You're not going to have, you are not going to have another king in your household, which means that someone's going to replace you, and it's not going to be someone from your family. So Saul knows he's going to be the last king with his surname. To be honest, he's going to be the last king of his tribe here. Now we're going to see even more so. So take a look at it with me. We'll go through the text. Verse 24. And the men of Israel were distressed that day. Now Jonathan had actually picked a fight with the, again, with the Philistines. Saul had placed the people under an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. No other people of the land came to a forest, and there was honey on the ground. Now understand, when Saul makes this edict, Jonathan is out there fighting. If you will, if you think about it this way, Saul is making laws. He's building standards while his son is on the offense. Jonathan is making progress while his dad is making edicts. And what his dad says is, nobody eats until we take down Completely my enemies. The problem is it wasn't Saul's enemies. They were God's enemies. They had declared war on God. To this day in the Middle East, it is your God against our God. If you take a look at what is being said by a lot of the Muslim communities, you'll see the very same thing. Now, interesting that we'll play this. Well, maybe it's the same God. It certainly isn't, by the way. Uh, And understand there it's always been who wins. And we're going to see that throughout Scripture that it's like we've got our God, you've got your God, and we'll see which God wins. And they'll say, oh, well, their God's the God of the hills. Let's fight him in the valleys because maybe our God's the God of the valleys. It's always this your God against my God. And the reason I say this, the Philistines openly have declared war on God. 
But Saul now decides this was about him. It was about him and his enemies. And he tells every other person, you can't eat. You need to fast until we take down my enemy. You all serve then, not God in this situation, you all serve me. Because it's my enemy and you're going to take him down with me. Do you see what Saul's taking seriously? Himself. That is what happens when our heart isn't handed to God. Is the one thing we take seriously is us. And I want to warn you, it takes down anyone. Because the moment you start taking yourself seriously, you either become very proud, you become very insecure, you become easily offended, or you become easily offensive. Not in a good way. And what you find is all of a sudden, people are walking around eggshells on you. Because all of a sudden, people start looking going, man, don't talk to that person right now. Have you ever been in a place where you're like, you know, the only thing I can do at this moment to really not offend is fake death. Because if I say something, I'm going to offend them. If I don't say something, I'm giving them the quiet treatment. That's going to offend them. Well, all of a sudden, you realize some people, they just take themselves way too seriously. And you watch somebody and they're easygoing and they're enjoying life and they're enjoying the Lord or whatever. And then all of a sudden, man, it just becomes all about them in the performing arts business. However, that plays out, whatever it is, it's always that way because the focus is on you anyways. So it's like, you know, and so you watch people, you know, some models get a blemish and they want to kill themselves. You, know, you watch a singer gets laryngitis. And we know a guy, by the way, that was out there performing and he was the lead role for one of the things that Birchie was a part of. And, uh, and with that, you watch him and he got laryngitis. And I tell you what, he almost, he, he almost went completely off the rails. He really lost his mind because everything revolved around his voice. It was all about him. Now, you could put an understudy in and people are going to still enjoy the show. The show is still going to go on. Oddly enough, it was about Barnum. So the show where he says the show must be on, must go on. And, and yet, if it didn't go on with him, well, clearly it was the end of the world. Now, today, by the way, I, was almost, I almost took the train, the overground train down here. And right at the last minute, I was walking up the hill and the Lord says, don't go. Don't go. Take a bus instead. And I thought, oh, okay, whatever. During that time, there were one of two trains I could have taken. On one of those trains, I get down here and I hear um, there are severe delays on the overground at Finsbury Park, which, by the way, is where I would have interchanged, because of two trains. The first train, there was an incident on the train, a big fight, where guys went mental on each other, dragged in a whole bunch of other people. Guys were punching women. They were just so big into it, they were hitting anything around them. In the second case, somebody jumped in front of the train and killed themselves. You ever wonder? I mean, do you realize by the fall and near Christmas, there are weeks we have at least two a week here of people jumping onto trains, and you think, what could possibly happen to make a person do that? Please hear me on this. The whole concept of killing yourself is wrapped around the idea that your universe that now is forever. Whatever you're dealing with right now, you can't see past it. And it's all about you. You take yourself way too seriously. Now, understand, it isn't that you don't take anything seriously. I mean, those kind of people, they're monkeys. But on the other side, there are those that take themselves seriously, and they're going to do one of two things. They're either going to explode or they're going to implode. Either way, they're going to destroy themselves. Or you take God seriously, and you don't take yourself so seriously, so that when people make fun of you, you don't take it personally. When people want to shirk you or deny you or make fun of you, you don't take it personally. Because if you take that too personally, you'll never share Jesus with anyone, will you? 
You know, it's interesting. I have this rule. I don't always follow it, but the rule is don't take anything personally unless it's a compliment. No, I'm goofing with it. But the idea is simple. I mean, when people go mental on you, when they start saying crazy things, anytime we get a letter, even if they say, I'm from Venus and this is what I got from my space angel, you know, I still read it and pray. Is there any truth in this I need to know about or was this just for my entertainment? But in the end of it all, after that's done, this is the cool part. I am not the builder. I am not the foreman. I am the construction project. And when I know that I've handed my life over to the Lord, it is such a beautiful thing because I know it's his job to fix me anyways. And because I know that I'm in his hands, I can actually trust that God will do it in his time. My job is to obey and surrender. And if I take him seriously, I really don't have to worry about it. And so when someone says, well, the Lord told me, and I'm like, look, it, I do know the Lord has my number too. And he really knows how to call me and often does. Now, here's the point as we move quickly through this is that in this situation, the, this king has gone off the Richter. He's gone off the Richter with this idea, you guys, listen. And, and think about the crazy total control this king has at this moment. I don't want you guys eating until we kill every person. And the crazy part about it was God never said you had to do that. Now, Saul said you had to do that. And as far as Saul was concerned, listen, hear me carefully on this. He wanted every Philistine annihilated. He wanted them all done. That was his mindset. And I don't want you sleeping. I don't want you eating until that happens. But now his son didn't get that. They didn't get the memo. And it says then, when the people came into the woods, verse 26, there was honey dripping and no one put his hand to his mouth for the people feared the oath. Could you imagine you haven't eaten anything and honey starts dripping and you're like, oh man, are you kidding me? Now, if you're the kind that fasts, and I am, I actually enjoy fasting. I know it's kind of weird, but I actually do because I love to set aside time and really be like, God, man, I really need this. When the world is so, it's like I feel like I'm walking down the gauntlet like a carnival. And everyone's like, get your thing, get your sin, and here's some more vice, and here's, you know. And it's like, it's, it's almost impossible not to see it. I feel like I have to, it's like my way of taking a bath often. But when that happens, it always seems like when I'm fasting, that's when I smell things like I never smelled them before. It's like all of a sudden the best bread and the Brazilian barbecues like move into my neighborhood. And it's like, I, I can't believe this smells. You know, it's amazing how that happens. Some guy sits down next to me, starts eating something. Usually when someone sits next to you on the train and they're eating something, it usually never smells good, even if it's something you like. But on that day, it does. But I can't imagine here you are because some guy said you couldn't eat. Not because God said it, but because some guy decided it instead. You look and you see honey and you're like, oh, Jonathan, verse 27, hadn't heard his father charge the people with the oath. Therefore, he stretched out the end of his rod that was in his hand. He dipped it in the honeycomb, put it to his mouth, and his countenance brightened. Then one of the people said, oh, you shouldn't have done that. Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, cursed is the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Everyone's passing out around Jonathan. Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. Look now. How my countenance is brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found. For now they would have not been a much greater, wouldn't there have been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines? He's like, you know what the odd thing is? He's shooting himself in the foot. If what he really wanted to do was fight this enemy, and they really were an enemy of God, if he really wanted to fight them, wouldn't he actually spend his time fortifying his army instead of actually beating them? I mean, the last thing you need is to get beat up by the guys you're fighting for. 
Jonathan's like, what are you doing? What, what was my dad doing? And this is what happens. Hear me, beloved. When you take yourself seriously, it is really easy to hurt other people. Because somehow in it, they just don't do enough for you, no matter what it is. No. They were driven back. They drove back the Philistines, it says, on that day from Michmash to Aijalon. Now, it's important to recognize, for what it's worth, Ajalon, by the way, was where a crazy miracle took place that is so unscientific, people say this couldn't possibly happen. In Joshua chapter 10, there was a battle being fought, and Joshua said, Sun, stand still. And he was in the valley of Ajalon. And God gave him a much longer day. Now, how in the world did he do that? People are like, oh, well, you just know if God stopped the earth, everything would fly off because the gravity would be lost and all this stuff. Well, it's like, look, if God knows how to stop the earth, if he's big enough to do that, I think he's smart enough to know how to hold everything in its place. However he did that, God could have, to be honest, could have just shown himself and kept the day bright. We don't even read how. We just read the sun stood still. So crazy miracles took place in this place where the Philistines, we read by judges, were determined to dwell in a place where God had done a great miracle. Hear me in this. There are times where God does an amazing miracle in your life, and then still the enemy wants to go and repossess the land, if you will. All of a sudden, God delivers you from drugs, or he delivers you from anger, he delivers you from spite, or from from crazy things, and gossip, and, and insecurities, and all this stuff that you get so wrapped up in, and then somewhere in it, you ease up a little bit, and he starts taking the land, because it says, because they were more determined to dwell in the land. In the end of it all, you just got to be more determined. That's what happens when we take God seriously. It's like, why would I give land back that God gave me? No. It says they were driven back all the way from Michmash to Aijalon. And the people were very faint, you think. And all the people rushed on the spoil, took sheep, oxen, and calves, slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate with the blood. Now, this is kind of key. God went all the way back in Genesis chapter 9 and said, don't eat the flesh with the blood. Because he calls the blood the life. Life is in the blood. Now, do you realize how long it took for us to catch up with God on this one? Science didn't understand this until 60 years ago. 60 years ago. How diseases are transferred and carried through the blood? About 100 years ago. But you understand the whole idea of it. People were getting mad cow here 10 years ago because of what was in the blood. And the idea is simple. If you drained the animal of its excess blood, a lot of those things are taken care of. Then you just cook the heck out of it so you actually make sure that the rest of the blood is actually taken care of. It's purified, pasteurized. But these people, and that was a law that God said, understand, hear me on this. When, when we often use this word holy when we talk about when God throws out these commandments to us. Uh, and understand why. The H actually stands for health. It is amazing how many times God will tell you something, to be honest, just because he really wants you healthy. I mean, when he told the Jewish people, when you touch a dead body, you actually should bathe afterwards. It's a commandment to do so. When the bubonic plague hit here, as a matter of fact, do you realize where the bubonic plague started in London? St. Giles, just right up the way here in Covent Garden. There's still rats, by the way, at the church. You see them outside. That's exciting. But what was amazing, again, was that the Jewish people were the ones not dying. So people actually thought the Jews were sorcerers because of it. When it actually turned out, but really the case was, they were, when they touched a dead body, they washed themselves. And when they washed themselves, the things that carried bubonic plagues, the mites that were on the fleas on the rats, well, they were washed off. Now, you wouldn't know that because you couldn't see those things. 
especially when God was telling them three and a half thousand years ago. But for three and a half thousand years, they haven't gotten the diseases of dead people because they washed themselves afterwards because God told them to. Often what God will do is he'll give you a commandment, to be honest, to help you be healthy, to keep you alive. The O often is obedience. And the idea is quite simple. God will tell you some stuff and you're like, I don't understand why. And God's like, do you have to understand me to obey me? But if you've, ever, if you've actually had good parents, you kind of get this a little bit. Because there are times as a kid, they don't have time to explain to you the minutia of something when really what they need at that moment is for you just to get out of the traffic, for you to pull out of the street, for you to whatever. Because truth be told, at that moment, there's not a lot of time to explain. And I want to start with that and understand the whole idea of this is that when God sets things out like this, he does not because he loves you. What God really wants in the end of it all is to leave you in a place outside of the rest of the world to make you unique so the world would actually learn from this. That's the L. And the Y is that you would actually yearn for him. In our text now, the people, they are too hungry to be concerned. And they're, in essence, now whether they're just burying their faces in raw meat, it's arguable, or whether they're just sort of cooking it up but they don't really care, in the end of it all, they are subjecting themselves to all kinds of diseases and all kinds of dangerous pathogens simply because they're not doing what God told them to. So as a result of that, Saul said, look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating the blood. He says, if you have dealt treacherously, roll a large stone here to me today. And Saul says, disperse them yourselves among the people and say to them, bring here every man, every ox, his sheep, slaughter them here. And you don't sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So everyone brought their own ox with them that night, slaughtered it there. Interestingly enough, here's a guy, even in this state, builds an altar to the Lord. And it was the first altar he built. He's already been a king for quite a while now. And I wonder, is this a great moment with Saul? It may actually be. But here's a moment where he knows what happens is that if you disobey God this openly, you're going to get it. And please hear me. Just because a person obeys God in something does not mean they do it because they're completely surrendered to him. Sometimes they do it because they just don't want to receive the repercussion of their disobedience. And we know that. As kids, I have kids that, you know, I know sometimes they do stuff because they're told to and they know that there are repercussions if they don't. Sometimes they do it, to be honest, because they're just happy to serve. Now, I like the second one a lot better. Now, Saul says in verse 36, let's go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Don't leave a man among them. Do, and they say, do it seems good to them. Then the priest said, well, why don't we draw near to God here? Now, did you notice Saul is making lots of plans now especially in the area of battle, and he hasn't sought the Lord in any of them. And a priest finally steps in and goes, you know, now I know you're the leader, so I don't want to cause any trouble here, but shouldn't we at least pray before we do this? Wouldn't that be kind of weird? I mean, lives are, in the, lives are in stake here. I mean, if we go to battle and God's not really with us in this battle, we could all die. That's pretty big stakes. Could we, should we seek the Lord on it? In verse 37, Saul asked counsel of God, did you notice in all of this, Saul's doing everything? He's the one doing the sacrifices. He's the one building an altar. He's the one who says, bring it all here to me. We'll do it. As if he was the conducting priest at that moment. Where are the priests at this moment? Well, there's one that's actually telling him, you should probably seek God. So Saul's taking care of everything. Now, please hear me in this. This is a natural thing of what happens when you take, things ser- so se- take yourself too seriously. Is you wind up basically doing everything yourself solely because you think you're the only one who should do it. No. 
As with that, now you don't seek the Lord because you're too busy just doing stuff. So Saul asks counsel of God, verse 37. Shall I go? Now notice he doesn't ask the priest to do anything. He doesn't call the, doesn't call the nation to pray. He's the man. Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them out of the hand of Israel? But God did not answer him. He did not answer him that day. Now it doesn't say that this is because, and we'll see here, we don't read that God's ever going to speak in this situation. What we find is Saul is so full of himself, he's not hearing God at all. And he has made this oath, and Jonathan has broken the oath. Saul said, come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and know to see what the sin is today. Because clearly, if God's not speaking to me, the sin must be you guys, right? You ever do that? Where you're so kind of into yourself that what happens is if something's wrong, it's clearly someone else. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be my Jonathan, my son, he'll surely die. Not a man among the people answered him, because they all kind of knew it was Jonathan. Then he said, well, Israel, you be on one side, my son, Jonathan. Will be, and I will be on the other. And all the people said, well, do what seems good to you. And Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, give a perfect lot. So Saul and Jonathan were taken. The people escaped. Notice here this escaped. Saul said, cast lots then between Jonathan, my son Jonathan and me. Jonathan was taken. So Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of my rod that was in my hand. And now I must die. Saul answered, God, do so and more also for you shall surely die, Jonathan. Do you see what happens here? Saul made an oath and he did not care who broke it. Because he broke it, his judgment is you're dead. Interesting. You break the littlest bit. Now notice he said, Jonathan, I only took a little honey. Now please hear me in this. You know, Saul said, don't eat anything. Don't go near anything Jonathan went through a little bit. And Saul says, you're a dead man. To his son. The people, on the other hand, rescued Jonathan. It says, the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair on his head shall fall to the ground. He's worked with God this day. So all the people rescued Jonathan. He did not die. Then Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines. And the Philistines went to their own place. Now, did you notice, though, by the way, even though Jonathan now was delivered from this crazy oath that his dad made, interestingly enough, we don't read that God starts talking to him. It tells me there's a whole lot more going on here than just Jonathan. So Saul established his sovereignty over Israel, fought against the enemies on every side, against Moab, against the people of Ammon and Edom. That's, by the way, Jordan today. Against Zobah. And against the Philistines, by the way, Zobah would be the area of the Syrians today. The Philistines would be actually, you might even say the Palestinians. Wherever he turned, he harassed them. And he gathered the army and attacked the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. Now, the sons of Saul were Jonathan. Of course, that's the guy we know. Yeshua and Melchishua. What kind of guy names his son? And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn, Merav, and the name of his younger, Michal. Michal, by the way, means who's like God. We're going to find both of these cookies are going to play into David's life, as well as Jonathan. Now, the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army, this is one of my favorites, is Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Now, Ab, like Abba, means dad. So Abner actually means Ner is my dad. And what is his dad's name? Ner, 
So Nur names his son, Nur's my dad. Could you imagine? Well, we actually kind of had that. You know where we have it? In England and in Scotland. Because there's Davidson, Johnson, Thompson, right? We have all of these. And what are they? They're the son of someone. By the way, we get a lot of that because that goes all the way back to the Middle East where we read someone, the son of someone. Remember when you read that someone begot, someone begot, someone begot? Well, you can actually do that in Scotland. You chase it through your, you know, what do they call those things? I should know these. That's like their shield, you know, your banner. What's it called? But there's like, there's another name for it, your family tree, but it's like where there's like your symbols on your shield. What's your crest? Thank you, your family crest, Right? And like, oh, I come from a long line of Johnsons that go all the way back from the Davidsons that go all the way back. Well, in the, the, the Irish and the, and the Scottish, we use the word Mick. Do you know what Mick means? Son of. So McMahon, McDavid, Mick whatever. It's like, you know, McDonald's means the son of Donald's. No, you get the idea. And all, for all that to say, this is his family. But there's, a, I mean, his commander is a guy that's name is, which I just love. His name is Nurse, my dad. Nurse, son. Because his dad's name was Ner. And now, verse 52, there was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or valiant man, he took him. Notice it doesn't say for the Lord or for the army. He took him for himself. And this is what happens, by the way. Did you find your crest? Oh, look at that. For the, you know, the, the anyways. Okay. <laughs> okay. Follow me in this, you guys. Saul is recruiting but what Saul is recruiting now is for his cause. What's interesting is it still would be the Lord's battle. It's still what the Lord, the Lord says. There are certain groups, by the way, that have so sworn against God and so sworn against them. Look at, you know, it, it sounds so crazy for God to say, I want you to go and fight those people. But I want you to recognize, even with the Ammonites, the people for which the owned, that had the land before Israel came in, please understand, God says, I gave them time to repent. He gave them 430 years for them to turn to him. And he called out to them and called out to them until they got to this place where they have, will never say yes to him, but instead will live their entire life declaring war against them. And we're going to see that now with a group called the Amalekites. Now, please understand, the Amalekites go all the way back to the book of Exodus, chapter 17, in this sense. Once Israel got out of Egypt... I mean, the moment they were passed through the Red Sea, the first thing we saw was this battle at a place called Rephidim. And the battle was this group called the Amalekites. And please understand, the Amalekites took on the weak, the stragglers, the children. In other words, the ones that were at the back of the line. The Amalekites are often used as a reference to the flesh because this is what happens. You really want to find yourself in the flesh? That's pretty easy. Stay up late. It's the easiest time to fall in the flesh is when you're tired, when you feel weak. It's usually not a time of great spiritual strength. Usually, you know, when you're kind of tired and you're kind of hungry or hangry or whatever, it tends to be the flesh really. It's amazing. No matter how tired you are, the flesh makes sure that it can erupt. And it always seems to hit the weaker moments. And God said, by the way, we're going to keep score of this. So interestingly enough, all the way back in the book of Exodus, chapter 17, and I challenge you to look for it yourself. God will actually tell them, there is going to be a time. I'm going to give them a time to, get, to repent, to clean up. But I guarantee you they're not. And there's going to be a time where you're going to take this down. 
chapter 15. And I remind you, Saul has taken him so, so seriously that any small infraction against his word, remember that, any small infraction against his word meant death. Are you following me on that? Look at chapter 15, verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Now, hear me. When God tells you, listen carefully, you better listen carefully. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek now for what he did to to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. So go and attack Amalek. Utterly destroy all that they have. Don't spare them. Both kill man and woman, infant, nursing, child, ox, sheep, donkey, camel, donkey. So Saul gathered his people together, numbered them at Talaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men in Judah. Now I remind you, he started with 330,000. Now understand what God said is, I don't want you taking anything of theirs. Don't take any ox. Don't take any sheep. Don't take any of their stuff. Don't take their big screens. You know, don't take their cool little idols. Don't take anything. Now understand, your gold and your silver that you would trade was almost always already fashioned into an idol. Don't go for it. Don't go take it because say, well, I just took the silver. The silver was an idol. Don't go take in the gold. The gold was an idol. So it isn't like, well, I want some gold. What were you taking is someone's idol. And he goes, I don't want any of it. I don't want you to go, look at it. Let me provide for you. Now understand the difference. Chapter 15, please hear me. Chapter 14, Saul said, here's my crazy vow. And then my crazy vow, well, he didn't say crazy, right? We just know it that way. Don't you dare step past it an inch. Well, I'm going to kill you. You know, you get the idea. But now God says, I want you to do, I want you to utterly wipe this out. Don't take anything. Now I remind you, God tells us to the measure in which you judge, it will be judged against you. Why? One of the reasons it's good to be merciful, isn't it? So Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay away in the valley. Verse six, Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. You showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. Now, that's actually a really cool move, by the way. Now, understand also that that makes their army smaller. Now, the Kenites, you might not know this, but the Kenites, according to Judges 1.16, were the people of Moses' father-in-law, who had a couple names. One was Ru'el, by the way, which means a friend of God, but also my favorite, Hobab. Yeah. And, and the idea is kind of simple, is that these people, by the way, they were already people who dwelt in the wilderness. So when the people left Egypt, they didn't remember. They had been there 430 years. They had no idea where they were going. That was pretty evident. You know, but, but understand they were like, we, if you guys, you, we need you to be our eyes and our ears because you guys know the desert. And they were willing to go with them. So now here it is. Their family has been carried down. And they're like, look, at, we, we're going to go and we're going to take on this city. We don't want to kill you guys because you guys, have been, you guys are not our enemies. So you better get out so we can take on our enemy. And so they do, which is good. Saul, verse 7, attacked the Amalekites from Havilah, which, by the way, all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. And in other words, that's a very far north to very far south. We see that in Genesis 25. But notice verse 8. He also took Agag, Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. Uh-oh. Now, I remind you, Jonathan took a little staff, put a little staff to the honey, or I should say a staff to a little of the honey, and, and Samuel or Saul, or Saul said, kill him. Now, why in the world would a king leave another king alive? 
Why would he take him alive? Do you think he wants to torture him for information? Tell me why you had corners on. Not exactly. Do you know why kings save other kings alive? Because they want to make a statue of themselves. With their head, I'm sorry, with their foot on the neck of the other king to memorialize their victory. By the way, to this day, if you go up the mountain where Elijah took on the prophets of Baal, al Murraka, which means the place of burning, by the way, there is a statue up there, they say, as Elijah standing on the foot of, by the way, that mount is Mount Carmel. Remember that. Now, interesting, what you'll see is a bearded guy stepping on the neck of another guy, memorializing their victory and that person's defeat. Does that make sense? So what is it? Like, hey, what you get is, his, Saul is not just not doing what God told him, but Saul is already shown what happens when you don't take his word seriously. And get this, Saul is taking himself seriously to the word, but he's not taking God seriously to the word. Now, if you're going to take yourself, then some people, let's be honest, are just that serious, hands down all the time. No matter what it is, they just take it seriously. Well, then at least make sure you take the Lord seriously. But if you take yourself that seriously and not God, I think that's a very terrible statement, especially when you're willing to kill people for not taking you seriously. And you want to do this for what purpose? Because you're so into yourself. You want to make sure everyone else sees how awesome you are in this statue. Don't believe me. Look at it yourself. Chapter 8, or ver- I'm sorry, verse 8, 15, 8. He also took King Agag of the Amalekites alive and utterly destroyed all of the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the best of the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, all that was good. And they were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Wow. This is what happens. Hear me. This is what an unconsecrated heart looks like. As it starts to surface, what it looks like is you are happy to let God clean up your toilet. The things in your life that you've mucked up, the stuff that stinks, that looks bad, that makes you look bad, that embarrasses you, that clearly you feel weakened. God, take care of all that. Why not? But... There are other things in your life. You're like, don't touch the West Wing. You know, it's like you get this idea. Don't touch my personality. Don't touch my looks. Don't touch my vibe. Don't touch my talent. But all those things are what God gave you. And the moment you're doing that, what you see is we start to see that our heart really isn't as set apart as it should be. Hey, the same thing happens in marriage. Because the whole idea is, hey, look at I want to give up all of my singleness to to be with you for the rest of my life. But all of a sudden you start going, yeah, but that area, but poker night, or but that one old girlfriend, or whatever. i got to have that still. And well, then you start going, man, this is starting to smell bad. And understand, this is what God's talking about here. But let me just kind of fast forward for just a moment, and we'll finish the rest of this text. King Agag, or the lineage of King Agag, the dynasty, goes all the way back to Numbers 24, by the way, in a prophecy. But what's interesting is the Amalekites were supposed to be wiped out. And King Agag was saved, would save the life, apparently, and a few others that came from his family. And the reason I say that is Saul, according to 2 Samuel 1.13, will ultimately die at the hands of an Amalekite. 
I think that's interesting, but it goes beyond that. In the book of Ezra, I'm sorry, in the book of Esther, if you know the story, there is a guy who has decided he wants to kill every Jew that ever lived. Do you think that was Hitler's idea? Like he came up with it? It goes all the way back to 500 B.C. with a guy named Haman or Haman. But what we read about the guy, as a matter of fact, if you've ever heard of a thing called Purim, Purim, what that is is the celebration of the victory God wrought through this Queen Esther. Well, Queen Esther, by the way, Esther isn't a Hebrew name. Her actual name was Hadassah. Um, Esther was actually the Babylonian name and means star. I love that because Madonna said she found her Jewish roots by picking a Babylonian name, Esther. Anyways, um, that's like saying I found my Jewish roots, but I decided to call myself Hitler. Um, interesting, though, this guy that wanted to destroy all, destroy all the Jews. Listen to this verse. This is Esther 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. Haman, there's the guy. The son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. What does it mean that the guy was an Agagite? He was a descendant of Agag, this guy that Saul kept alive. Crazy, isn't it? Now, back in our text, verse 10. Now, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. Notice it didn't come to Saul, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments, and it grieves Samuel. He cried out to the Lord all night. Boy, I tell you, Samuel, I mean, we take him as a, as a manly man. I like that, but he's clearly crushed here. Now, there's a question in regards to this. It's like if God knew he was going to do this, did God really know he was going to do this? I mean, after it says here, he grieved, he regretted. I mean, doesn't that sound like, well, I hired Saul and now I'm really disappointed in the results, like he didn't expect it? Well, listen, just because you regret something, because you're sorry and it grieves you does not mean you didn't know what was coming. I mean, from the moment that I could speak, from the moment I had any consciousness, my mother was, was dying from cancer. I knew ultimately, unless some crazy miracle happened, she was going to die. And when she did die, I was very sorry. I was very, I regretted it greatly, but it didn't surprise me. And the reason I say that is, just because someone regrets or grieves over something does not mean it took them by surprise. God's like, oh, it finally happened. And, it, and here's the crazy part. Just because God knows you're going to fail doesn't mean it doesn't hurt him. doesn't like God's like, well, I already knew that was going to happen, so let's just move forward. It's like it still hurts. And you know that. Because you have friends like that. That you kind of know that they're still going to be who they're going to be. And still hurts. Saul, by the way, what we find is he's blown it in a way that it really hurt God, but it also really hurt Samuel. And Samuel was really Saul's best man to have with him, other than his son, Jonathan. Jonathan, Saul's going to try to kill. And that's how bad it gets. And this is what happens when our heart doesn't belong to the Lord like it should. We really, really hurt people. And it doesn't mean that God doesn't have a great calling on your life. It just means that we're not willing to give him what we should to do the best with that calling. So, verse 12, Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went, look at verse 12 with me, don't miss this. Saul went to Carmel, and indeed, he set up a monument for himself. Where? At Carmel. Fascinating. 
And he has gone all around, on around, passing by, passed by, and he went down to Gilgal. Saul set up his monument for himself. Now look at when you are following the Lord, you find that there are no monuments to be made for you. But you know there are guys like this. God gives them the gift of healing, for instance, and all of a sudden it's like the Bob so-and-so's healing hour. There's the Lenny or the Benny or the whatever so-and-so hour of power. And it's amazing. It's like Jesus isn't in the title at all. He's nowhere on the poster. But his name is on there and his face and his immovable hair and his, you know, and his amazing coat and his amazing blah, you know, whatever. It's amazing when you get, oh, there's a whole lot of him. And God will be used if he's, a, if he's a means to an end. But in, this is what happens. You make monuments to yourself. The crazy part about it is you really don't have to prove you're awesome because God already did that at the cross. You never have to prove you're awesome. And I, by the way, I think you are anyways. I know that. Jesus died for you. How could you not be awesome? So Samuel went to Saul. And Saul said to him, verse 13, Blessed are you of the Lord. I've performed the commandment of the Lord. You get the compensation here? He's like really trying to prove that he did it all. And we do this with religious talk. Samuel said then, what is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? He said, you know, hey, well, wait a minute. If this is really what you did, I'm calling you on and I'm calling your bluff. Notice Saul's response, verse 15. He said, they have brought them from the Amalekites and the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen. Notice, they have, the people did. Do you know what he's doing? The same thing that Adam did back in Genesis 3.12. Not you, Adam. The Adam of Genesis. You know, He's like, look at it. It's the woman you gave me. It isn't me. I didn't do it. Now hear me in this. There's a way to blame people so that you're a victim or you're innocent or so you think. And then there's a way to blame things so that you're a victim. But in both cases, you're still guilty. Saul was the leader and he was responsible for his people. And he says... They did it. They spared to sacrifice to the Lord. Don't you realize we disobeyed to, to bless God? Do you think that works? You know, you know what I really thought would be cool if I robbed a couple banks but then gave it to churches. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't God just love that? No, that's nonsense. You don't do something wrong and think that somehow that that's for the purpose of blessing God. That makes no sense. And the rest we've utterly destroyed. The stuff we hated, we got rid of it. Verse 16, Samuel said to Saul, shut up, be quiet. It's kind of talk, but it really is that. I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And all of a sudden, Saul's a little different. He says, okay, go ahead, speak on. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? Do you really think you had to be awesome to to get this calling I put on you? Did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? And you wore the crown, but you let it go to your head. It's all about you now. Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites. Fight against them until they're consumed. You shouldn't, shouldn't have had a problem with it. You did that last chapter with, when it was your problem. Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down? By the way, the word there is eat. It's like to swoop like a scavenger or like a hunting bird. Why did you swoop on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? Samuel, Saul said to Samuel, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, gone on the mission which the Lord sent me, brought back King Agag, king of Amalek, I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people, they took the plunder, the sheep, the ox, and the best things 
Uh, and that should have should have been utterly destroyed. No, notice he says, I know that that's what you said. I know you said we should have utterly destroyed it, but the people, they did it. And they're going to do it to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, at Gilgal. And this becomes the secret, verses 22 and 23. Samuel says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings, as he does in sacrifices, and sacrifices, I'm sorry, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? God's like, you know, all of your crazy performances and your heroic acts mean nothing if your heart's not mine. And if your heart's mine, you'll do what I say. Jesus told us that in John 10 and in John 15. Behold, to obey, it's better than sacrifice. And the sacrifice here, of course, is an animal, for instance. And to heed, to listen and, and do it, better than the fat of rams. And he says this in verse 23. Rebellion is as, in other words, it's like the sin of witchcraft. Stubbornness is as iniquity idolatry. Rebellion, understand what that is. God says something and you say no. And God says it again and you say no again. God continues to say it and you continue to say no. God says, you know what that looks like to me? That looks like you messing with someone else's power when you should have mine. Stubbornness. That's rebellion. You're like just doing completely the opposite. Stubbornness. Now you're just not letting God steer you. You know why we don't let God steer us? Because we've made something else an idol. Whether that's our minds, whether that's someone. I won't do this because the moment you blame something else, it's an idol. And hear this. God doesn't want this because God, please understand, he knows me better than I do and he knows you better than you do. And to be honest, he wants better for us than we do. We'll pick, we already have a history of picking things that hurt us. We know that. We have a habit of making bad choices that hurt other people that we love and hurt us and make a real mess of our lives. And he never does that. And when he's trying to steer us somewhere and we fight him, we are fighting him to get the best of our lives. We are fighting the best life we could have by the one who's trying to give it to us. How crazy is that? Because you know what that looks like to me? That looks like idolatry. That looks like witchcraft which we can be aware of, God takes no delight in. As a matter of fact, he calls it an abomination. You know why? Because it's trying to get all the things of God without him. Why wouldn't he hate that? And he says this, because you rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Now we're almost done, but I need you to hear me on these last things. Don't lose me, please. We got a couple quick things to cover in this because now I have to get a little bit grammatical. In the Hebrew, it's actually really simple. Everything is either perfect or imperfect. And what that means, it's either done or it's not done. Perfect means it's a done deal. Imperfect means that it's not a done deal. And then there are different tenses in those things. For instance, there's one about that you do it, you really do it or it happens to you. We kind of say that like active or passive. But we also do things that are called reflexive. I know you do it for yourself. Like some people, by the way, it's like a gal really dresses up. Because what she wants is to really bless her husband or she really wants to be pretty to her husband. Other days she does it because she really just wants to do it for herself. The difference is in one case that would be active and in another case that would be called reflexive. You're doing it for yourself. Sometimes you buy something because what you really want is to bless someone. Sometimes you buy it to give it to them because what you really want is just to feel good about it. You do the difference, of course, is in the intention. There's also one, by the way, that's intensive, which means you really did it. I mean, I love the Hebrew for it. Well, anyways... When it says, because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he's also rejected you from being king. In the first case, it's perfect. You've rejected him. It's a done deal. You've made up your mind, but God hasn't. When he says he's rejected you, it's actually imperfect. 
In other words, it's like though you've done this stupid thing and you've rejected him, God hasn't actually closed the book on this. If you repented and changed your mind, this could look a lot different. I love this about God. That there are times you do things and God's like, this should totally disqualify you, but the deal's not done yet. You know, though you've done something, and I could just say, I'm cutting you off completely. Truth be told, if you're willing to humble yourself, if you're willing to take me seriously and let yourself go to that, we could, this could be very, very different. Notice Saul's response now in verse 24. He says, Saul says now to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, if he had to cut off the second half of this, it's all God's looking for. Can we agree this is wrong? But the moment you put a qualifier on it, it makes it sound like, yeah, I know it's kind of wrong, but this is why it's not as wrong. I'm a victim. But the moment you say you're a victim, it doesn't give you any confidence he's not going to do it again, does it? It's like I feared the people. Don't you realize it was out of fear? Fear made me do this. Now that might be true, but it doesn't take away the point that he still did something wrong, and that's what he needs to man up here for. He needs to just say, you know what? I was wrong. That's it. Don't give me, well, because I was hungry or because of this or that, all of the extenuating circumstances, and that's why it's not as wrong as it could be. It's just wrong. And it would have been it. But now, all of a sudden, notice what Samuel's saying. Samuel's saying, you're fired, right? Here's your P45. You are rejected from being king. You're done. Get off the throne. Hand in your crown. You're done. He's like, oh, now I've sinned. But please understand it was out of fear. Look at verse 25. This is still Saul speaking. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin. He's speaking now, remember, to Samuel. Return with me that I may worship the Lord. Do you see that there? Do you remember me talking about the different ways as far as the verb tenses and all of this? The word, by the way, to bow before God or whatever, shecha, but the word is hitpa'el. Now, all that means is it's reflexive. How does a guy worship reflexively? Think that through. That means you're not worshiping for God. You're, in essence, doing it for you. Well, how about if a guy walks into a church, sees a bunch of really cute gals, and realizes he needs to be a spiritual giant to win them over? He could totally do all of these acts of worship to impress them. He's doing it for himself, though. He's not doing it for God. And that's what he said, by the way, about the religious leaders. He says a lot of these times, it's like they pray and they fast and do all of these things. They give in such a way that everybody else applauds them. Well, they're not doing it for God. They're doing it reflexively. They're doing it for themselves. Does that make sense? And every one of us can get caught in that trap, to be honest, because we like each other. We're, you guys are really cool people, and I'd love for you to think, what a cool guy. What a guy that, what a guy that loves Jesus. But in the end of all, if that's really the end result that I'm looking for, I can perform in ways that, that don't bless God at all. How nonsense is that? And that's exactly where he is. Saul will never let go of his own thing. He'll die with it. He'll actually die with a crown on his head, if you will. Though, even though he's been fired, he won't let it go. So listen. Please pardon. Return. No, no, look at verse 25. Please pardon me, my sin. Return with me that I may worship the Lord. Do you really think that what Saul really wants is to worship the Lord? Well, if you're a Samuel, would you know? But look at how it develops in verse 26. 
Samuel says to Saul, I will not return with you because you've rejected the word of the Lord. Now, what difference does it make now? Remember how he said all the sacrifices in the world don't mean anything if your heart's not willing to obey God. In the simplest sense, all of your words mean nothing if the word yes is not involved. Does that make sense? Because what God really wants is a yes. So he says, look it. Therefore, please pardon my sin. Samuel says, I'm not going to go with you. You rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you. Same thing. Perfect, imperfect. You've rejected, but God's not done with it. But he has rejected you from being king over Israel. Samuel turned then to go away. Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. Get that image in your head for a second. Saul is, Saul is trying to keep his kingdom. So he grabs Samuel's robe and tears it. He's got a piece of it in his hand. You'll see why in a couple of chapters. But don't miss that image. Samuel turned around to go away. He did this, verse 28. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and giving it to a neighbor of yours who's better than you. Who wants to hear those words? You want to take yourself seriously? And someone says, God's fired you, and he's going to give it now, your job, to somebody better than you are. The question is, what would make someone better than you? The last time God spoke about the person he was going to replace his legacy with, he said, Someone was after my heart. What makes someone better than me would be somebody who really wants God's heart more than I do. That would make them more equipped for the job. Understand, all Saul is saying is, please don't let me look stupid in front of the people. Don't fire me like this. Verse 29, and look at, we've got our last few verses. The strength of Israel will not lie or relent. He is not a man that he should relent. And remember, relent means just stop doing it. Verse 30. Saul is speaking one last plea. I have sinned. Look at, yet, what's the word there? Honor me. I've sinned, yet honor me now, please. Before the elders of my people and before Israel, return with me that I may worship. And again, that's that reflexive, the Lord your God. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Did you get that? Please, please, please don't humiliate me like this in front of these people. I mean, they're expecting me to go and do this worship service. Please, please don't just do it like this where I have to walk away from this thing. They're expecting me to show up. You got to go back with me or I will be humiliated in front of everyone. Wow. But don't you you realize and please hear me. This is what happens when our heart's not where it belongs. We take the consequences very seriously, but we really don't take the sin very seriously. So we hate what it does to other people, and therefore we hate it. But watch what happens. A guy commits adultery, and his wife catches him, and he says he hates it. And he hates the fact that his kids look at him a different way. He hates the fact that his wife looks at him a different way. He hates the respect he's lost with his friends and this prayer group and his all and so forth. And what happens is somewhere down the line on all of that, he starts to change and he tries to get things right. And what happens? The moment that that lessens and his wife starts looking at him proper again and his kids start to, to try to move forward and his buddies kind of call him again, he maybe have to go back to it because he hated the consequences, but he didn't hate the sin. And this is where Saul is. He's like, please, this is all about me saving face. Samuel's like, are you serious? Even here at this moment, you would think you're flat, cold, busted, 
And even at this moment, you would really think that this is really about you saving face? Hear me, beloved. We're about to go to prayer. What if what God really just, look at, he just said, look at all of your performances. Stop that for a minute. All I really want is your heart. And if I can have your heart, everything's going to fall in line. Please let me have your heart. Samuel's not done. So Samuel said, bring King Agag, or bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously, and Agag said, well, surely the bitterness of death is passing. Well, no one's going to kill me now. Samuel said, as the sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord. You want to see that image? I'm like, that is so brutal. Would you hate to see that? I would hate to see that. Watch a guy hack a guy to pieces like that. Where all of a sudden you realize his strength falls off him, his arms are cut off, his legs are cut off, he's bleeding all over the place, blood's everywhere, his head's cut. But please hear me. What we watch physically is what God was watching happen to Saul. Just on the inside. Like he was being hacked to pieces by his pride. By the way that he, that he was the center of his universe. And so what happened is, there he was, he could have been this great thing, and now he's in pieces because of it. The same guy that made himself the center of his universe exploded as a result of it. And God doesn't want that happening to you, and he doesn't want it happening to me. And the moment I'm so driven by my own desires and I make me the center of my universe, this is what's going to happen. So, verse 34, Samuel went to Ramah. Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. Did you notice, by the way, now the place is Gibeah of Saul? I mean, he's got a monument to himself, and now he's got a whole city. Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. This was the last thing that Samuel had to say to Saul while he was alive. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. As we pray, I mean, I know this is heavy, but I want you to realize why. Because God loves you, and he loves me, and he doesn't want us in this state. He doesn't want us constantly trying to make decisions in a way as if God's here to serve us and we are making decisions on how he's to serve us. By the way, this name Agag literally means I will overcome you. I think that's interesting. No. As we go to prayer, please understand, would you have ever made the decision for Jesus to die on a cross for you? Would that have made any sense to you? Would you have made the decision for God to actually take you and reinvent you? But he did. Now God's like, look it. Let me rip things out of your life to replace them with things that will bless you. You think these things bless you? If you've ever had an itch that you know itching it makes it worse. With the water we have here that's been out of the bladder of five or ten or eight kings or whatever it is, it does stuff to all kinds of people's skin. I've never seen more people with skin problems than I have in London. But you kind of know the moment you start itching, it's just going to get worse. But it really feels good for the moment. It feels so good. And you think, oh, as long as I can itch, oh, that feels so good. Oh, that's so. But it just, it, it doesn't cure it at all. It actually just makes the matter worse. So much of what we think of is such a temporary itch. But it only makes the problem worse. 
And what God would like to do was take away the itch altogether. He'd like to cure the problem. And we're trying to take it, we're trying to scratch things. And by doing that, we're hurting ourselves. And we're running to these temporary things that just don't satisfy. But we keep on itching and we keep on scratching and it keeps on getting worse. And God's like, please stop this. Please let me fill your heart to overflowing with things that only I can give you. And he's going to pull things out of your life that you think are awesome. But I guarantee you, God will never replace it with something less. And as we go to prayer now, what if God did that here? What if we said, God, take my heart and make it so yours that whatever things that I'm so busy trying to make a revolver on me, instead let them revolve around you and give me the life abundant you planned to give us. The whole resurrection is to tell me there's a greater life than the one I lived before. And when that one dies, I have a so much better of one. And those of you who are married, you know this. Because a single life, the reason we gave up our single life is because we were convinced that marrying that girl or marrying that guy was going to be a better life than the life we had before. But you can't have both. Because if you try to have both, neither will flourish. And then we come to Christ the same way. It's like you can't really try to do both. We accept Christ with the idea that we let the old life die because he's got, a, he's got so much better of one. And next week, we're going to see what that starts to look like with a little kid when God says, I've replaced him with a guy better than you. Has he any idea, Saul is a giant grown man, a head and shoulders taller than everyone else, that it's going to be a teenager kid who probably is popping his zits and his voice is still cracking. Would you ever think that guy is better than me? Well, you'll see it next week. Why don't you pray with me, please? Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this beautiful text. And I thank you, Lord, for what you've done in this time. Lord, I recognize that all of the acts that seem heroic mean nothing if, if our hearts aren't yours. And like that in any relationship, we can try to do miraculous, these great feats, but if our hearts are not really with the person we claim to love, and how exactly is that really worth the time? We're doing it for us, not them. But I pray tonight, God, for every one of us. I recognize Jesus, but you chose to be tortured, not for you, but for us. And you were killed, not for you, but for us. And you rose again to offer us new life so that we could be with you. In the simplest sense, you gave up your life so that we could have life. And now we claim to be yours. And I know that's what you want us to do, to take up our cross and follow you, denying ourselves daily. And that's what that looks like. We give up our life so that others could have life. And yet the crazy part you promised is that whoever seeks to lose his life will find it. And I know there is no greater life than the one you give. And the more I hand my old life over, the more I see how awesome this one is. So even tonight, Lord, please overcome us with real life. And Lord, whatever it is that you say, I want that completely out. No hint of it. 
may we willingly do so. We do confess, Jesus, you died on the cross. We know that. And we thank you for that saving grace you've given us there and for your resurrection that gave us new life. So now, please, let us embrace that. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the amazing, radical, awesome, history-making callings you place on our life. May we live lives set apart that is appropriate for the callings you placed, for the giftings, talents you've given us. May we live the set-apart life proper for that calling. In Jesus' name.